Okay, let's open your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. I want to uh, just pray, God, you've got to get me high. I've got to finish this one today. I don't want to not finish it. And uh, I got really, t- funny thing, when you're preparing messages, often I get touched very deeply myself. And uh, I want to just share this with you. It's going to help you. We've been sharing on the imagination. How many people's imagination has been stirred over the last few weeks? How many people have found you've got a lot of stuff going on there that shouldn't be going on there? <laughs> how many have found that you, as you start to dream and think you go places and sometimes you say, how do I get out of here? I need to come back, come back. And uh, with daydreams and all kinds of things that go on or thoughts that go on. And so uh, we talked about the imagination and how God has given you an imagination to be a creative faculty in your mind for the spirit. So imagination is a wonderful ability God has given to picture something that hasn't yet been and then to be able to work towards bringing it about. So your imagination is very linked to your capacity to have vision for your life. And uh, we saw also the imagination can be uh, defiled. The imagination can end up where we're living out in fantasy world, a world of unreality where what's in our mind and what we're imagining is absolutely not true. It's not connected to the reality we're living in at all. And if you get too far out there, they lock you up. Uh, But it's the imagination gone out of control. And uh, we do have times when imaginations go out of control. And uh, you've got to guard that. And so we then looked at the area last week. We were looking at the whole area of our warfare, how to deal with the imagination, cleanse the imagination. Our key verse was 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3 through to 5. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down imaginations. You have to tear them down. Every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. So we saw then that there's a warfare goes on for your mind. Whatever controls your mind has got control of your life. If fear controls your mind, then your life is governed by fear and not by faith. If vain imaginations govern your mind, they will lead you to places you shouldn't go. And uh, so vain imaginations is a picture, an image, or some kind of thought process in our mind which is devoid of truth. It's just not true. Feels like it when you're thinking about it. Seems like it when you're thinking about it. But it actually is not true. And it can lead you to all kinds of places. It can lead you into fear. The moment a doctor says something about your condition, immediately, you know, you can imagine yourself at your own graveside. Suddenly you're there and fear grips your soul. And this can have a huge impact on your life. Just at that point, a doctor made some uh, assessment of you. Uh, Imaginations lead to confusion. We lead all kinds of thoughts all over the place and we get confused about what's the right thing to do about the path we should take. Main imaginations make you self-conscious. What are people thinking of me? They're all looking at me. They're thinking about it. They're talking about me. You start to think that way too long, very long you're very self-conscious uh, and, uh, and, and inward looking at yourself. Uh, the other thing that uh, vain imagines can, imaginations can do is they can cause us to, to project out self-importance. We think we're very, very important. We project out we're very important. You usually tell if someone's projecting out vain imaginations because there's a fruit chosen in their life. So if someone else, someone's projecting out self-importance, when you're with them, you don't feel built up, you feel put down, even if not much is said, because you feel the content of what's emanating out of their life. Uh, Sometimes, and a real danger, and a danger for us as Bay City, a real danger is where 
because we have certain knowledge or experiences in God that we begin to perceive that we are somehow better than other people, other Christians, other churches. It's always a danger. And then the more the experiences you have, the more difficult it is to remain in a place of humility because there's a tendency to think because of my experiences, I have a greater revelation, greater insight, greater and actually a projection of self-importance comes out. And this does not build people, it puts them down and it divides them. I can remember being associated with certain streams of churches and they had certain teachings and those teachings promoted self-importance. Certain doctrinal emphasis. We're the people of God. We're the end time people. We're the sons of God. We're this, we're that, we're whatever. And it produces a self-importance. It's a vain imagination. And it actually hinders unity. It hinders us being effective for Christ. There's all kinds of vain imaginations lead to all sorts of things. Last witchcraft, all that kind of stuff. And so we talked about last night, how, uh, last week, how to deal with vain imaginations. And I said that there were two parts to it. One part of it is the warfare to discipline and, and sort through what you're thinking and manage your mind. And we talked to you a little bit about that. And one of the things that uh, happens so commonly, I guess this would be the most common thing that happens everywhere, is people make assumptions. A thought comes in your mind, you assume something about the other person and fail to check out whether what you've assumed is true. Before you know it, you're in a vain imagination. They don't like me. They're not treating me right. They're this, they're this, they're this. Most relationships break down because of vain imaginations and people just never ask questions, check the facts. So you have to discipline your thought life. And last week we shared with you some of the keys, how to cleanse your imagination from pictures, how to take hold of thoughts as they come and to deal with them. But today I want to share something that goes a bit deeper than that. I want to talk about the renewal of your mind, the renewal of your thinking, the cleansing of your imagination by renewing what's going on inside you. And uh, I want to share with you a few things that will help you because when we, <clears throat> when we think about the renewing of the mind, many times we think, well, I don't know what all that is about. It's up to the Holy Spirit to take away the things that are bad in my life. And so if I just open up to the Holy Spirit, he'll just remove the bad things. And of course, that's not true. He doesn't work that way at all. So what I want to do is I want to do this in two or three steps. Uh, I want to, first of all, explain to you how your memory works. I want you just to understand how God designed you to work, because he's not going to violate how you're designed to work. So if we just understand how our memory works how God has wired us to operate. Then we're going to look at how the Holy Spirit initiates healing of things that have been painful in our lives. And then I want to look at what your part is in renewing your mind. There were three things. So we'll look at the first thing then. Is first of all, I want to look just about how your memory operates. And uh, it's quite helpful. It operates on, on the basis of three things. One are impressions. Two is repetition. And three is association. I'll explain each of these in a moment. First of all, your mind operates or your memory operates off impressions. That's how a memory is stored. How does it work? How, what happens? Well, when you have an experience, it's stored in your mind as a memory. So every experience you've ever had, there was some storage of it took place in your mind. And the information is passed into your mind along electrical paths called by neuron, they're called neurons. This is like electrical circuit. That's all it is. The information comes in, passes on, and goes into your mind, and then it's stored inside there. And what causes a, a memory to be deeply impacting in your life is if there's a lot of emotion with it. 
take note of that because you're going to find this is an important thing when it comes to dealing with our inner life. When a, something you experience has a lot of emotion with it, it actually is, it, it, it is more deeply embedded in your memory than almost any other. If there's no emotion with it, it isn't embedded in your memory very much. For example, you think of your first kiss, a lot of emotion with that. You remember when and where and how. Just only one kiss, but you remember it. It, had, it, it was impacting because there was a strong emotion came with it. So any, any experience you have which strongly affects your emotions will make a stronger impression, a stronger marking in your life. And if you have a traumatic experience, then what happens then is there's a huge imprint left inside your mind by the traumatic experience. And the way God has wired your mind is it doesn't just go to one place. It's spread all over the mind in different parts. That's what makes it sometimes hard to recall it and bring it back. It's spread out. So the first thing is impressions. Whatever experience, the impression it makes on you, if it's a deep impression, you tend to remember it. If it's got feelings associated with it, you'll remember it even more. So often you'll find you'll remember something, you'll hear something, and then you'll, you'll remember something, and then there's emotions come back to mind. Okay, so the first thing is impression. So the deeper the impression and experience has on you, <clears throat> the more it's embedded in your mind, the less likely you are to forget it. If it's a major one and traumatic, then it'll embed deeply in your mind like a crack and a fracture. It'll be spread across the various parts of your mind, and it's recorded there, and it's just there, and it doesn't go away. He doesn't go away. He doesn't go away. Second thing to, to realize is, is the power of repetition. So God has designed us that if we repeat things, what happens is it goes something like this. If you do drive a cart along the same spot all the time, you'll start to find there are ruts on the road. When we went to Rome, we went down some of the roads in, uh, in Rome or one of the other places, Pompeii. And in Pompeii, there's actually ruts where the chariots went. You can actually see the rut. So if you try and drive a chariot there, it'll fit into the rut, and then it'll just go down the rut. Once it's in the rut, it's not easy to get it out. So what happens is with a memory, if you have an experience, there's a track of neuron paths are created within your brain, and then if you keep having that, you repeat it, the same track is formed, 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 goes deeper and deeper and deeper, until in the end you've got now something embedded into your mind. And you don't have to think about it anymore. You just drop into the rut and away you go. And for example, how many of you have found, like for example, you're driving to work, you drive to work every day, and then you get in the car and start to point it that way, and then before you know it, you're there, and you haven't even thought through how you got there. It's just like it's now become such a habit that you get in the rut, and when you point in that direction, something subconscious takes over. It's the imprinted memory, the rut, and away you go. I've even had it where I've meant to go somewhere else, and I started heading towards the church and ended up going to the church. Like, what did I do that for? Because I was no longer conscious, it was unconscious, subconscious. Any idea? And so, for example, uh, if things are, uh, are harder to, if they have no emotion with them, you've got to repeat them to memorize them. So, for example, if you want to learn the, the times tables, you have to keep repeating them, and you repeat them, and you repeat them, and you repeat them. Then eventually, after repeating it enough, it's just locked into your mind. It's like there's a mental rut, a neuron path deep enough to contain that thing, and you just immediately have got it. Now, this is all stuff. It's simple stuff, isn't it? But you have to understand how this operates. So we've got that, how we, we, we memorize things when we, first of all, have an experience, forms a path in the mind, and if you uh, repeat the experience, then the path goes deeper and deeper and deeper. Now, of course, the thing is, if there is emotion with that experience, 
then that path becomes quite deep and it becomes quite set into your mind. Then there's the next thing. The third thing is, first of all, we have the, uh, the impression that's made by an experience we have. Then if we repeat the experience, it begins to set into our mind. And then the third thing is association. Now, that's, that's the important one now, because what happens is we begin to, things aren't just in, in isolation, they are connected. One thing is connected with another. So associated means one thing connects with another. Now, what happens is that one thing in your mind is connected to another, so one can trigger off the other. You see how this works. I'll explain it exactly in a moment. Now, what is recorded in your mind in a memory is this. In the memory is recorded the experience you had. But the, the thing that's mainly recorded in there is not just the event itself, but the emotions you felt as you experienced it. They are recorded. And remember, if it's a strong emotion, it's a strong impact in your mind. Also is recorded in there is your reaction. So if you had something happen to you, and then you felt fear, and you leapt and reacted in fear, that is recorded. Any idea? And then the, the, the fourth thing that's recorded in there is what you believed, or how you perceived this thing that happened to you. Okay, got it? The experience, the feeling that was there, how you reacted, and then what you believed about it, how you interpreted it. So, for example, a young child is growing up and the family breaks up. And so for a long period of time, he feels conflict between mum and dad. He may not understand what it was all about, but in his emotions, he's deeply affected. And so he remembers. What does he remember? He remembers conflict. He remembers pain. And he believes this is unsafe. I've got to do something. And maybe he chooses to hide. Now, all of that's built in. Then the parents leave, and now suddenly, traumatically, the father's gone. And so he believes, as a result of that trauma, then he believes in his heart a couple of things. One, conflict is really bad. It's unsafe. Two, people will leave you, and you're on your own. And maybe other kinds of things as well. Now, you understand, so that's wired into the heart. Now, what do we try and do? Well, we try and control it all and bury it all, and we try and push it all under. And what we do, something like called like this, move on with my life. The dilemma is when you try to move on with your life, you have a, an imprint, a record in your memory of the event, of the emotion, of the reaction you made, and of what you came to believe about that situation. Now, it's still all stuck in there. Now, anything that reminds you or is associated in any way with that will trigger up the emotions. So, for example, you may just be in a situation and then there's a little bit of a conflict takes place and immediately an overwhelming fear is there. Why is the overwhelming fear? There's only a little conflict. But you understand that you're not reading a little conflict. Your mind is remembering and associating, this is dangerous. This is my world is going to fall apart. Uh, they're going to leave me. This is what's going to happen to me. And a huge reaction takes place. Many people... For example, react in anger, and they don't even know their anger just just whoosh just just burst out. Now, why did it suddenly burst out? Some of you who are married, you'll have situations that you're trying to cover up or trying to uh, deal with or trying to work with, and what will happen is a little thing will be said, and suddenly there's this huge emotional reaction, grief or tears or anger or fear or uh, or reaction of some kind. And, but it's not, it's not what you're dealing with just there. It's actually deeper than that. It's some stuff you've never resolved. 
And the moment you experience that feeling, immediately you lock in on the other feelings and the whole lie associated with it is up there and now you're into a vain imagination. And you're no longer able to resolve your relationships and no longer able to work things out because now there is a, there's an illusion is operating. It's partly true, it's not the whole truth. You understand what we're talking about here? We're all getting very quiet now. Tell someone, I know he's talking to you, just listen up on this one. And we'll talk how you get out of it in a moment. So, so you may see a person and suddenly a wave of fear is triggered. And you think, what on earth is that? You may have a little experience and suddenly there's a wave of emotion is triggered. And you can't even work out what, what is this connected to. And uh, because what's happened is it's tapped into something stored in your memory, stored in your subconscious. Now, so how are we going to get rid of all the junk? See, because that junk will feed your life and affect the way you operate. Because as a man believes in his heart, so he is. So, for example, most of us at some point come to conclusions about what we're feeling and experiencing. Now, let me just throw out to you some beliefs that people hold on to. Because the Bible says, as a man thinks in his heart, that's how he'll run his life. That's how he is. And what happens is uh, we form ungodly beliefs. An ungodly belief is a belief or an expectation or some kind of assumption or judgment, and it's not true. It's just not true at all. But it feels true. And you really believe it's true. And because you really believe it's true, it's going to operate in your life. Will you be aware of it? Probably not. Because it was buried a long time ago. Now, yet you'll still operate in it. And uh, so that's why we find, even though we've become a Christian, we still operate very much along similar ways to what we operated before we were saved. And unless we let the Lord renew our heart and we work on renewing our mind, we will continue to operate like we always operated. This is why the work of the Holy Spirit is so vital at some point. Let me give you some examples of beliefs that people have, an ungodly belief someone may have in their life that will affect how they relate and how they respond when things happen. Now remember, these beliefs were formed when the person had an experience and felt pain and came to a conclusion, even if it was a wrong one. You understand? So children come to wrong conclusions. So for example, if the parents are in argument or fighting, the child may actually assume, I'm to blame. And so they have a belief in their heart, I'm to blame. Anytime there's a conflict, you know what they believe? I'm to blame. And uh, let me give you a few kind of these things. I remember sitting with someone recently, and uh, they were talking to me, and we asked, I asked them about a conflict that they'd had, and they described it each from their own point of view. And one, and one, one person began to talk, and as they described it, I said, well, just wait, stop right there. Your assumption is that you are to blame. You actually haven't even heard what the problem is. But immediately you felt the conflict, immediately what's coming up. As soon as you had the feeling, immediately the belief came up and you're down an imagination. You're down a vain imagination. And you're no longer connected to the person. You're not even part of solving it anymore. You can't solve it anymore. Because you haven't stopped to listen and sort it out. You've just come to this conclusion immediately, I'm to blame. It's a prevailing mindset or it's an ungodly belief. Let me give you a few typical ones that people have. Now, you may actually identify one that you have. I know when I looked this person in the face, I said, wait, wait, wait. I want you to tell me what you feel when I tell you what you believe. And I I told them what the person believed. And as soon as I told them what they believed, immediately they started, there was weeping. 
emotions are connected to the ungodly beliefs. You know that? See how it works now? You have an experience. If there's a lot of pain with it, then the experience is deeply embedded. You come to assumptions or reactions, and the whole deal is locked up inside. And if it's repeated, it reinforces, reinforces, and becomes the way you run your life. Doesn't matter whether you're in church, Christian, or you'll still run your life according to how you have been programmed inside over those experiences. And if you don't recognize that and begin to adjust it, you will run through this terrible process where you're trying to serve the Lord, but you've got these repeated patterns in your life that do not seem to go away. And you feel so condemned because you can't seem to get any better. And God wants to help us not to get better. He wants to heal us. In the idea, here's a few untypical ungodly beliefs. I don't belong. I'm always on the outside. No one cares what I feel. The best way to avoid hurt is to isolate myself. I'm the problem. There's something wrong with me. I'm bad. People knew me. They never accept me. No matter what I do, it's not good enough. That's the one too. It must be my fault. If anyone gets close to me, they'll hurt me. God loves others more than me. I'll never have any money. I'll always be poor. My value is in what I do. You talk about what I do, immediately I'll react because you're attacking me. That's a weird thing, isn't it, eh? Here, someone tries to give you feedback on your performance or how you're doing and immediately get all emotional, you know then that you believe that what you do is who you are. And they're attacking you, so now you're going to defend yourself, fight or flight. Get sulky and withdraw or stand up and really have an argument and get angry and react and not receive the feedback that would shift and change your life. This is why Christians get very defensive when someone tries to give them feedback that would help disciple them, shape them so they can be productive. Instead of being able to receive it, they become angry and offended and take it as an attack upon themselves, when it isn't at all. But that's how they've always seen life. And unless they change how they see life, then they can't actually move on or progress. Forever important, these areas. Okay, here's a couple more. Said, I'm unattractive or I'm ugly. I'm fat. Uh, I, I read a, uh, about a, one young woman, and when she was going through teenage years, a boyfriend she had said, you're fat. It got into her, and she could hear that thing. Now, remember, there's emotions involved, and there's a judgment she came into agreement with. You know what happened? She got down this whole thing of bulimia. She, no matter how she looked at herself, I'm fat, I'm fat, I'm fat, I'm fat, I'm fat. There's something wrong with me. And so that belief inside began to drive this whole thing of bulimia. It was actually a lie, rooted in a lie that was believed because there was strong emotions with it. Any idea? I'll give you a few more examples on the way. Okay then, I must guard my feelings. I need to plan everything in case something goes wrong. I'm sorry, that's a vain imagination. Plan, yes, but you don't have to have everything planned and worked out. You end up controlling everything and everyone. Imposing your plan on everyone else so you can feel safe. See, vain imaginations will lead to all kinds of behavior that destroys relationships. Never trust anyone. Eh? I must never make any mistakes. I'll get into trouble. All of these are kind of beliefs. There's many, many beliefs people have. One of the most common ones, it's my fault. It must be my fault. So how does the Holy Spirit bring about healing of this? Now, let's have a look in John chapter 16. 
church over the years has not done too good. We've kept ourselves open to the healing ministry and really worked since we first pioneered here. Joy and I really saw the need in our own lives for healing, emotional and relational healing. And so when we came here, the Lord said, I want you not to teach what you've taught before. I want you to open your life to learn keys and to understand how the healing of the heart takes place because people are in need of healing. And uh, so we began to learn a few keys like that. Now, what I noticed and observed in some church streams, it's less common now, they would say something like, it's all under the blood. And that was a convenient way of not actually identifying what the problem was, taking responsibility for it and dealing with it. True, legally, the blood of Jesus has made provision for healing, but I have to actually appropriate the healing. If I have sinned, I have to bring the sin specifically to the cross, confess it, and believe to receive forgiveness. If there's something wrong or there's damaged or brokenness in my heart, I need to bring it out specifically with its emotions, feelings, and beliefs to the cross to be cleansed and its power to be broken and the thing to be healed. But you can't just bury it and get on with it. It just an, it's, a, it's, it's a losing way of trying to handle conflicts in life because nothing's solved, it's buried. And anyone who observes your life will see it coming up every time the same emotions are present, you'll immediately be triggered off and you'll behave the same way you always behaved. Bit of an issue, isn't it? So how does the Holy Spirit deal with it? Well, what we'd like the Holy Spirit to do is to push the button, zap our brain, fry the memory, and that's it. We don't remember anymore. Thank you, Jesus. And of course, you can do that in a computer. You take the file, push the button, delete, the file's gone. Unfortunately, though, anyone who's expert with a computer can go back and find where that thing was and restore it back again. Go down there into the junk bin, there it is, sitting there waiting, you push the restore button, it's back again, it never got deleted, never, never left the computer, it's still in there. So we would like it to be that way. But this is how the Holy Spirit does, John 16, verse 13. However, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. Notice what he will do, he's called the Spirit of truth. That word truth is an unusual word, it's a word without anything covered or hidden or concealed. No hidden things. So he's the spirit who doesn't tolerate hidden things. It says, when the spirit of truth has come, he will do what? He will lead you into, or he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own authority. Whatever he hears, he'll speak. He will tell you things to come. He can also tell you things of the past as well. So notice that word guide. That word guide means to accompany you on a journey and show you where and how to get there. So the Holy Spirit will accompany you on the journey into healing. It's his job to do the healing work in your life. Jesus said, Spirit of the Lord upon me, he's anointed me to heal the brokenhearted. See, so the Spirit of God is a healing spirit, and he, but the way he does his healing is he guides us or walks us into truth. Now here's where the problem comes. If you have lived your life bearing your pain and controlling it, you have saved yourself. If you want to be healed, instead of trying to control the brokenness and the damage, if you want to be healed, you've got to abandon trying to save yourself and allow the Holy Spirit to lead you where you may not want to go so Jesus can save you. Because his name is the Savior. That word save means to heal, restore, deliver, rescue, make whole again. 
So his work of saving is more than just sin. It's about deliverance. It's about healing and restoration in the soul. It's about every facet of our life. He has come to save us. He is a wonderful Savior. And his salvation is full and complete. But to obtain it, you must let the Holy Spirit lead you there. So Jesus said, I won't leave you an orphan. I will send you the Holy Spirit. He's the Spirit of truth. Won't leave anything uncovered. He will lead you into all truth. Or He'll guide you. Or He will walk and take you down a path that will bring you to healing. But of course, you have to cooperate. You've got to be willing to take the path. And the dilemma is most people don't want to take the path. You know why they don't want to take the path? It feels painful. And if I go there, what will I feel? My life will get out of control. I can't afford to go there. I've got to keep control. No, you don't. Control is your way of trying to cope with something Jesus wants to heal and restore so you don't have to control it anymore. So you have the choice whether you control the pain, control what's in your heart, or whether you make a decision to allow the Holy Spirit to lead you to the truth. Now, what happens is this. You start to talk about it, immediately feel the pain. The, as soon as you feel the pain, immediately now an imagination is running your life and you're going to do everything you can, no more pain. But the Holy Spirit will take you into that situation and change what it is. It's amazing how he does it. He's very, very simple the way he does it. This is how he does it. He brings you back into the memory. He brings something to your mind. He'll help you remember things. It's one of his jobs to bring back to memory. Second thing is, he helps you access the emotions of it. When you remember, you begin to feel the emotions. You begin to cry or feel angry or feel hurt or feel alone or whatever. And then he uncovers what the ungodly belief is underneath. And here's how he does his healing. So remember, in order to get you healed in this part of your life, he takes you back so you remember it, you feel it, and you begin to realize what you've believed all that time. Then he heals it. And how does he heal it? He shows you what you never saw when you were going through it. He enlarges your vision and shows you something you never saw before and now your understanding spiritually is open and you can see, ah, healing comes, new insight comes, you're different. It's completely different. I, I better give you some examples just to show you, uh, tell you how, how it works. I had a... Uh, in, in the family I grew up in, there was conflict. And my, I would feel conflict. I'm a very sensitive person. I feel it very, very deeply. And so every day I would feel that conflict and I would conclude, this is bad. I would feel afraid and withdraw. And so I practiced withdrawing. And uh, sometime later, so recently, uh, the Holy Ghost spoke to me, wanted to bring healing. And I said, okay, let's go. And immediately, I was at home, and I was standing there in my bedroom, and I was looking down a long corridor, and I could see the house. I could remember the place. I, I remembered it vividly. If you'd asked me to remember, I wouldn't remember. The Holy Spirit told me I could remember it vividly, every detail of it. And I saw the Lord standing there, and he had his hand out to me, and he's saying, I want you to come to that place of conflict. And I actually physically recoiled. <laughs> And felt this horrendous fear. So now I was in the emotion. I was remembering it. I was feeling it. And I was reacting to it. Just like always. He said, I want you to follow me. 
And the moment I said yes, I was in the kitchen in the situation, and there was all the conflict, and I could feel, still feel it, but I felt something different. I felt two hands resting on my shoulders. And I realized Jesus was right behind me. His hands were on me, and his peace was just flooding me, and I was sitting there watching it all, and it wasn't affecting me. And he said, I'm with you. And with that truth that Jesus was with me, with the feeling and the experience of him there, the fear all left. What he did was he overwrote the old thing with something, the truth. I can still remember it. I can remember it vividly. I can remember it in detail. But the old memory is overwritten with the truth. The latest updated memory is this. There's two hands on my shoulders and it's okay. I'm all right. Thank you. See, see how he does it? I can share with you all kinds of people that we've prayed for, and, and many of you here have already got testimonies of how God has helped in this area to bring healing. Something the Lord's been doing, have made a big deal of it in the last year though, but I've seen a lot of people healed and set free, just encountering the Holy Spirit, encountering the Lord. Uh, a little while ago, my son-in-law spoke how his father had been killed in front of his eyes when he was nine, and he went back there where he'd never wanted to even talk about, let alone go there. And when he went there, Jesus appeared to him in that scene and overwrote the scene. Did he remember it? Did he feel things? Yes, yes, yes. But it was overwritten by something else. He saw the Lord and the Lord said, it's not your fault. And the Lord touched him and ministered to him. And his last memory is one of freedom from that thing. Not bad, eh? I was looking at that scripture that I've just read out to you. Now the Holy Spirit uh, it says, he, he was the spirit of truth, he will guide you into all truth. And I began to look up the meaning of that word guide. And it just means something like this. It means he will walk with you and accompany you and take you where you need to go. He, he'll just be with you as well as showing you what to do. And immediately I started to weep. And I thought, oh, I've learned now when you start to weep, God's trying to touch you on something. So I just paused for a little while. And then when I realized what God was trying to touch, I was overwhelmed. Suddenly, I had about six or seven different flashbacks from my life, just one after the other. Boom, 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 boom. And every one of them was a similar kind of thing. I was having to do life alone. And the belief in my heart came up, I'm alone. I'm always on my own having to figure stuff out and do things. And the grief that came with it, immense grief of trying to walk through life alone and face challenges, relationship struggles, difficulties alone, no one to connect to my heart. And the Lord said, I'm always with you. I'll never leave you. I'll never turn away. And I felt his presence in each one of those things. I just began to weep. You see, the experience was overridden by a fresh experience. I was updated in truth. And so the belief system changed. The feelings changed, and then the behavior changes. So that's how God does it. But you've got to be willing to let him go there. And the trouble is often we don't want to go there. But if you don't go there, you remain broken, and that's not God's plan for you. His plan is for you to be whole and restored. And not only that, his plan is, notice this in Psalm 84 verse 5, it says this, Blessed is the man whose strength is in the Lord, who passes through the valley of weeping and turns it into a well that can minister and bless others. God, your breakthrough, your healing, your point of restoration, that is a well for someone else. It'll give him hope and it'll give him help. 
Sometimes in that place when God is doing that thing, we need to be delivered and need to renounce things, repent of things, forgive things, so on. He'll tell us what to do. Anyway, I just want to move on. I've got to finish this. In James 1, 22, he says, look, 21, he says this. Uh, how, so, so, so there it is. You've got to let the Holy Spirit come in. But also we need to work on renewing the mind. I want to give you just the keys for how your mind is renewed. In James 1, 21, it says, receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your soul. The word of God, this Bible here has got power to heal and restore your soul. There's power in that word to heal you. How can I get the word from here into me? He says, well, receive with meekness the engrafted word. That word engrafted is the same as having an implant. I had an implant, titanium implant. What they did was drill a hole in. They stuck an implant, screwed an implant in, and then they left it. And about six months later, the bone had grown around the titanium, and now the titanium is now in the jaw. Then you can build something on it. So the engrafted word, the Holy Ghost puts the word inside our soul so that it begins to be engrafted into the soul. Then it becomes, it brings stability to us. But how do you do it? This is the beautiful part of it. This is the part I really love. How is it I can get the word of God and get it into my soul, engrafted in, so it stays there and changes me? It's very simple. Once you've identified what the Holy Ghost has said to you or done to you or shifted in you or spoken to you about, get two or three scriptures that confirm that or speak of that situation. Get two or three scriptures and you're going to graft them into your mind. Now, how do you graft them into your mind? You graft it in two ways. You graft it in using your imagination. Would you believe it? The very thing that was your downfall now is something you use constructively to imprint the Word of God in you. The second thing you use is your tongue, confessing. How do we do it then? Well, here's the first thing. You take the scripture, and this is what you do. You take time. Now, notice this. You're going to see how it all connects together. You take time to picture the truth of scripture. You visualize it, picture it in your imagination. You see the scripture. So, for example, the Lord is with me. I will never leave you nor forsake you. What does it look like? If Jesus is never going to leave me, I need to let my imagination create that truth in a picture form. See, I'm not making something up. I'm taking the Word and using my imagination to see it. And I just need to see that and see that and see that and look at it and embrace it and hold it. And second thing I need to do is not just imagine how it looks. Imagine how it feels. What does it feel like? What would it feel like to know that God is with me all the time? Picture him and imagine what it feels. Because remember what we saw, um, an experience coupled with a feeling will be embedded more deeply into your mind. So if you begin to imagine the truth of the Word of God and imagine how it feels and dwell there and embrace it, say, imagine what it is to, to see God loving you. How does it feel to be loved absolutely unconditional? You begin to imagine that. Your heart begins to open up and you embrace the truth. And then you repeat it. Picture it. Imagine how it feels. Repeat it. And you just repeat it every day, every day, every day. You repeat that scripture truth. And it begins to implant into your mind. Second thing you do is you confess it. You speak it out of your mouth. The Bible says... The words we speak are spirit and life. So I need to confess what God says about me. 
confess it and hold it around my life. Agree with it. Speak it out. Confess it over my life. The Bible says in Hebrews 10, and it tells us, I think verse 26, it says, Hold fast the confession of my belief and expectation. How long do you have to do that for? Well, I'll give you an idea. Really, really simple. There's a scripture in the Bible where it says that Satan is the Lord of the flies. Beelzebub, Lord of the flies. How many know that one? Okay, a fly's life cycle is 40 days. So repeat the cycle, repeat the meditation, repeat the confession of the scripture for at least 40 days till you break the lie. Second thing about flies is they tend to lay eggs every six hours. So you should be meditating and repeating scripture over your life at least once every six hours. You really want to shift something in your life? Set aside 40 days and two or three times a day, you just go into that place of memorizing the scripture, meditating in the scripture, imagining what it looks like, imagining what it feels like, speaking and confessing it over your life. You will shift your mind and heart and reprogram your mind so you are changed on the inside. Now, who's going to do that? Well, you've got to do that. We can depend on experiences. Experiences are wonderful, but we need the word to fortify them so they grip and hold and last. What an amazing God we serve. He's designed us so that we can have a fantastic imagination. We can receive revelation from him. We can draw up ideas from inside. We can create things that have never been seen. But that same imagination God gave us can be twisted and perverted and taken another way unless we're willing to go there and let the Holy Spirit cleanse the imagination. And we'll rise up inside and say, Lord, I'll do my part too. Father, we just thank you for this time when you are teaching us how we can be totally changed. We thank you, Lord, that we are totally transformed when we are willing to renew our mind. I pray for every person here and those who are listening to the CD and hear this message and watch or listening on the internet. Father, I pray that your spirit would begin to remind them of situations, reactions, behaviors, ways of doing things that you're willing to help them find healing and deliverance and release from. I pray, Lord, you begin to work to bring things to memory. Things that people have buried down because they were too painful. Give them grace to actually face them and the belief systems and the wounds and whatever's under there and resolve it and begin to renew the mind so we can begin to enlarge as a people. Enlarge as a people. Enlarge and break out of limitations.